guys, grab your Bibles and let's go back uh, to uh, the book of Esther and see um, if we can't get in some trouble there. Um, I'm going to read to you. Uh, the bulletin says 1 through 8. Somebody missed a 1. It was probably me. But it's 1 through 18. So follow with me as I read chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Here we go. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with the Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of a guy, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of a guy who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the, the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. And in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shagaz, Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king... She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. The grass withers 
and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. You guys, the last thing in the world I want to do is get bogged down in the historical data uh, which goes into making up the backdrop of this book. But trust me, there is, um, there's tons available from extra-biblical sources. The primary one being that of Herodotus, who is the Greek historian. You may have heard the name Herodotus. But occasionally, it seems to me, that um, knowing an historical detail or two uh, might help us in grasping the great richness of the message of this book. So my, my, uh, my outline today is just two points. Um, I want to talk to you about the history, some of the history behind this. And then I want to talk to you about some of the lessons that we can learn about that history. Okay, if you've still got your Bibles open, I need to show you something. If you'll look at verse 3 of chapter 1, it says, in the third year. You see that? Now look at chapter 2, verse 16. Uh, which is in the month of Beth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, do you see that, ladies and gentlemen? In 1.3, it says third year. In 2.16, it says seventh year. That is, four years have elapsed between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Four years. Now, you might be wondering... Um, What has taken place in those four years? Well, I'm so glad you asked. And uh, enter now Herodotus, a Greek historian uh, studied by some of you in in college or or high school. Gang, um, most of the historians, along with Herodotus, agree and suggest that there is a sequence that takes place here in those four years. There's, a, there's an unfolding of events in those four years that I want to I tr- try and share with you. And, and again, I say, there's pretty much a unanimity, unanimity of opinion over this sequence. Here we go. The banquet, the banquet that we talked about or read about in chapter 1 that lasted 180 days is a banquet in which Xerxes, his Greek name, Xerxes is displaying all of his wealth and all of his glory so that he can consolidate the, um, the, the, the leaders of all those 127 provinces in his empire to, and, and to gain their loyalty and cooperation to his cause. Now, what cause, you ask? Well, guys, um, Xerxes is entertaining these men who would lead his army against Greece. Xerxes' father, whose name is Darius, has already attacked Greece once and lost and, um, and is now dead. So this 180-day banquet that we read about in chapter 1 is designed to impress all of these governors, we'll call call them. It's designed to impress them with perhaps this motive. A motive of, okay, fellas, whoever fights best with the biggest army will be rewarded 
with all of this stuff that you've been enjoying for 180 days. All these parades and all of this music and revelry and dancing and, and alcohol and women and all. Uh, whoever's army fights best, this is what you're going to get in return. Now, how do I know that? Well, folks, it comes to us via the Greek historian Herodotus. And, and, and I want to read you this. Herodotus includes in his account a portion of a speech. A speech made by Xerxes at this banquet in front of these assembled nobles. Let me just read you. This is, this is directly from Herodotus. The speech that Xerxes made, or at least a part of it. He says this, Xerxes is speaking. For this cause I have now summoned you together that I may impart to you my purpose. It is my intent to bridge the Hellespont, that's a river, uh, to bridge the Hellespont and lead my army through Europe to Greece, that I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. You saw that Darius, was my father, was minded to make an expedition against these men, but he is dead, and it was not granted him to punish them. And I, on his and all the Persians' behalf, will never rest till I have taken and burned Athens. As for you, this is how you shall best please me. When I declare the time for your coming... Every one of you must appear with a good will, and whosoever comes with his army best equipped shall receive from me such gifts as are reckoned most precious among us. And so, ladies and gentlemen, what you are watching in chapter 1 in this banquet is Xerxes displaying all of his wealth to show to these governors <laughs> that he could make good on his promise and reward those who would rally to support him in his campaign against Greece. In the midst of all of that, all of that drinking and 180 days of revelry and all that's going on, Vashti... The queen is called for. Now, if you read the book, you know that. It's in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. In the midst of all of this hullabaloo, Vashti is called for. But by this time, all of this revelry and all of this drinking has led to nothing but a wild frenzy. And so while inebriated... Xerxes decides to show off another of his prized possessions, his wife. She was to be brought into the banquet wearing, this is in verse 11 of chapter 1, wearing her crown. And most of the commentaries, ladies and gentlemen, would suggest to you that she was to be wearing only her crown. And to be placed on display so that she can be gawked at and leered over by a bunch of drunk men who had nothing on their minds but lust. She refuses for reasons that are not stated when her whole job as the queen was to enhance 
the king's image before all of his colleagues. But she refuses, and by her so doing, she creates a cultural and political crisis. Xerxes is scrambling to try and stay in charge. And so a cabinet meeting is called in verses 13 through 22 of chapter 1. And the, the, the conclusion is Vashti is to be banished and stripped of her crown. Now they must find a new queen and that process begins in chapter 2 that I just read you. Now guys, wake up. Press the pause button just for a moment in the, this part of the story about the search for a new queen. Because as that process of searching for a new queen, as that process begins, remember that four-year period that we talked about? In, in, in that process of searching for a new queen, most historians suggest that at that point, Xerxes marches on Greece. It would take place actually between verse 4 and verse 5. That's where he marches on Greece in chapter 2. Um, he leads his army into Greece in an unsuccessful and humiliating defeat. He returns humiliated, his, his treasuries depleted, and he has, has been discredited in the eyes of all of his subjects. When he gets back from that defeat, he faces another battle at home, a, a domestic battle uh, that he had left behind when he marched off to Greece. And that domestic battle is settled in the selection of Esther. But that only comes after this, this long process of having a kind of a, a Miss Persia contest where all of the empire's most beautiful women are brought in for a year. And for that year, uh, that year is spent in beauty treatments. Verse 12 of chapter 2. Um, and boy, that's a lot of oil of Olay, I, I have to tell you. Um, but they're, they're given a year to polish every seductive art to, to enhance their beauty by pampering their bodies and, and applying all of the arts of cosmetics and fashion. Erotic seduction is the name of the game. This little orphan Jewish girl, Esther, aided by Haggai on the inside, the eunuch on the inside, um, passes all of the harem test with flying colors, noticeably rising above all the rest. And after her one night with the king... She is chosen to replace Vashti, beating out all of those other beautiful women uh, from the empire. Now, just as an aside, Herodotus adds 
that Xerxes, to ease all of his feelings of despondency over the loss in Greece, envelops himself in, in sensual overindulgence, which ultimately leads to his demise. Had enough? That's the history. Um, that, that's enough history for, for the moment. That's what takes place in those four years. But what are the lessons of this little four-year interlude? I hope you're ready for this. Because this is not pretty. At this point, ladies and gentlemen, in the story, or at this point in the commentaries, um, in, in, the, in, the, in the world of theological debate, a huge discussion erupts among scholars over comparing Vashti and Esther. Of those two women, which one of those two women is the most virtuous? The liberals, the feminists, they hate Esther. She's a man's plaything. They love Vashti. Esther gets where she's going by selling out all of her moral upbringing. She's a sex kitten. Esther bowed to male domination. She is the stereotypical woman in a man's world. Vashti, on the other hand, stood firm. Even when her standing was going to cost her big time. She, Vashti, she stood up to the man. Esther spends one night with the king. And her future was riding on her performance. She wins by her ability to satisfy sexually. Her worth as a woman is tied to her physical attributes. Now, interestingly enough, not only do the liberals and the feminists hate Esther, so do the religious people. Religious people don't like her either because they see her as having failed as well. Unlike Daniel, you know, who held firm to his convictions, Esther compromises. She keeps her Jewishness a secret. She's a liar. And she lies because a man, Mordecai, tells her to keep her mouth shut. She lies. She commits adultery. And she marries a non-Jew. All of which 
are violations of biblical law. All sanctioned by her uncle Mordecai. Now, ladies and gentlemen, remember, these two, Esther and Mordecai, they're the heroes of this story. You, you noticed, I'm sure, that she spends a year not cultivating great character. I mean, <laughs> who, who wants that stuff? I mean, what is, what is that? I mean, who values that? No, no. She spends a year enhancing every physical attribute that she's got. What I want, says Esther, is what will, whatever will make me look good on the outside. Whatever it's going to take to make me more appealing. That's what I want. I want a, I want a smaller nose. And I want a bigger, um, a bigger, bigger other parts. Because is that not what's going to get me where I want to go? I mean, but what could she do, Jimmy? I mean, imagine how, how tough it would be to, to maintain some kind of spiritual equilibrium when everything and everyone around her is emphasizing only the shape of her body and the beauty of her face. That's all that matters. Are you sexually appealing? Ladies, does any of that sound familiar? See, that's the point, ladies and gentlemen. That's the lesson or one. That the world, well, forget the world. Let's just talk about the church. The church has adopted that same value system. We've assimilated a godless culture. We, um, we applied at the University of Paganism... And, what the, and we asked them what they, what they required of us so that we could get in. And so whatever they told us that would enable us to get in, that's what we gave them. And you, my female friends, you're the victims. You bought in hook, line, and sinker. Tell me. How much effort do you expend becoming more attractive or becoming more sexually seductive? 
Tell me, ladies, how much cleavage is necessary? How do you choose your mates? And let me speak to both genders for a minute. How do you choose your mates or, or even your dates? Well, I can tell you how you do that. The first cut is purely external. And then later on, you're hoping that, 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 that there's, they've got some character. And tragically, some of you made decisions or some of you will make decisions based on those those factors alone. And then you woke up about 18 months into that thing and you asked yourself, how in the world could I have married him? Let me explain that for you. Guys, are, are we Christians guilty too? Are we guilty of selling our souls for one night with the king? Are we a concubine to the world system? Have we sold out? What drives us? Clothes? Hair? Figure? Lip gloss? Are you counting on your performance to get you where you want to be? Ladies and gentlemen, Esther was willing to betray her whole spiritual heritage without a hint of resistance. Are you... She committed adultery, she married a pagan, and she lived a life that was a lie with not so much as a thought as to what God might think of her decisions. All of this so she could spend one night with the king. And I would say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that this is no less of a temptation for Christians today. Living in a culture that grows increasingly hostile to any hint of a biblical guideline. But by the way, before you think I'm picking on the girls, um, and... Uh, and come to the conclusion that I, I think this is only a female problem, not so fast. Guys, what was Xerxes' problem? What was his beauty? Well, it's obvious. It was wealth and power. And so, guys, we too are trying to figure out what kind of job we could have that would make us a whole lot of money 
which would then lead to a healthy dose of power because we're convinced that chicks really dig that stuff. You know, guys, in Persia, the most important thing about a woman was her beauty and her sexual attraction. In Persia, the most important thing about a man was his wealth and power. My, my, my. Aren't we glad we don't live in a society like that? Isn't this sickening? Are you kidding me? Gang, our world is just like this. Externals, image, appearance, wealth. Those things matter far more than character. It doesn't even matter if you've got any character, if you've got wealth. And as a result, the eating disorders abound. The drinking begins. Marriages become hellish. Porn is addictive. Plastic surgeries. Cosmetic surgeries galore. And we call that good grooming. Because we are obsessed. With appearances. We're obsessed with the outsides, not the inside. We all have to undergo beauty treatments. And unless we have that kind of beauty, we're worthless. We need to surrender to the world's beauty treatments. Whatever they tell me, whatever they tell me that will make me valuable. That's what I'm going to do. God cares not one whit about your outsides. And we are obsessed with them. Does that tell you anything? I don't know whether you noticed this, but Esther is the only person in this story who has two names. It's in verse 7 of chapter 2. And this is the author's way of, of depicting her. As a woman trying to live in two worlds, a woman with two identities, and because she was so successful at hiding her Jewish heritage, apparently she adopts all of the, the dress and the uh, fashion customs to the extent that she was completely unrecognizable as a Jew. And many of us here, are working like crazy 
to do the exact same thing, to be just like her, so that we too can be queen for a day. Eventually, ladies and gentlemen, in this story, as you know, if you read it, eventually you know that she has to choose. And so do you. She gets off to a terrible start in this book, but by the end, God uses her mightily. How does that change take place? we're going to see. But you need to know this much at least now. God does not save people who live morally exemplary lives. He saves people who have blown it badly, like Esther and like me. That's called grace, ladies and gentlemen. God doesn't look for good little boys and girls so that he can reward them. There are no good little boys and girls. His specialty is taking people as wicked as we are and then giving them a gift. Gives them the gift of eternal life. Esther was no beauty to God. But God turns her into something great. Ladies and gentlemen, may I say to you with abject conviction that Jesus loves us in spite of how ugly we are, in spite of our flaws. And because He does, He takes the ugly. And he makes this beautiful. He changes my definition of beauty. He changes my value system. He changes everything. Tell me, my friend, have you received that gift? The gift of eternal life? Because if you have, your story has just begun. One more little tidbit, one more little lesson, and I'm done. Regardless of their motives, that is Esther and Mordecai, regardless of their character, the decisions that they make, as bad as they are, move events in some inscrutable way to fulfill the covenant promises of God towards His people. Do I need to translate that for you? Translated, God uses even my mess-ups for his own glory. But it's time to stop messing up, ladies and gentlemen. Mess-ups like you and me. We need to say, dead gummit. If I perish, I perish. And you know who said that first, don't you? If you read the book, you do. It was Esther.
Esther is one of those mess-ups who has come to Christ and her whole life changes. So will yours. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will remind us of um, the temptations that we face, the, uh, the value system into which we bought that does nothing but sicken our souls and make us ugly. I pray that you will show us the great beauty of the gospel once again, the gospel that says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, in spite of all of the mess-ups all of the uglinesses of the past. And as a result of what you do inside of us, all of our values, all of our priorities, all of our schedules, all of our decisions, all of our choices, they change. They're influenced by the beauty of this Savior. Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met the Savior, would you, would you cause them to see that they're on a path that will end in their own destruction. But you cause them to see there's an option. And that option has at its center Christ and Him crucified. We love you, Lord Jesus. We are sorry we love you so little. But would you grant us grace to love you more? We pray it in your name.